they are great. They're so charismatic, but people don't think they are. Uh, they're more than just on your dinner plate. They do so much for the environment. So they mainly, their main function is because they filter feed. So they suck out particles that are in the water to get their food. And then the water that passes through them is now clear. Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we investigate the climate crisis through a variety of different lenses and topics. Hello, and welcome to the Amplifier podcast. Today, our podcast will dive deep into sustainable aquaculture and climate change connections. We will be your hosts for today. My name is Jaya. I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Thomas. I'm from Arlington, Virginia. We are both undergraduate students at Emory University studying environmental science and today, we're discussing how shellfish aquaculture can feed our global communities while providing ecosystem services. We are going to analyze the shellfish mariculture industry in the southeastern United States. We want to discuss the history of the shellfish mariculture industry, explore how and why the farming of shellfish is beneficial to the environment, and investigate the impacts of climate change on shellfish. We have three very special guests joining us today. Dr. Ashley Smith, who is a professor of biogeochemistry at the University of Florida, Dr. Jane Harrison, who is a coastal economic specialist with North Carolina Sea Grant, and Ms. Natalie Simon, who is a biologist in the University of Florida's shellfish extension team. Their insight and knowledge helped us understand our topic in a much more holistic way and gave us a deeper and more informative look at oysters, their environmental and community impact, and oyster-related policies that they themselves have been involved in. So stay tuned to hear more from these professionals. We are going to begin today by providing background on oysters in the shellfish aquaculture industry. Then we'll dive into climate change and its relationship to oysters. Okay, let's get started with the basics. So what is aquaculture? It's very likely that some of our listeners have never heard of the term aquaculture. Aquaculture is a cultivation or farming of marine species in controlled saltwater or freshwater environments as a food source. Aquaculture is quite a broad term. The two most common forms of aquaculture can be divided into these sections, fed and unfed. Fed aquaculture species include finfish, such as salmon and carp. Simply put, these finfish require food and create waste, and a lot of it too. Unfed aquaculture species include shellfish and kelp, which are self-sustaining and therefore highly sustainable. Meanwhile, mariculture is a specialized wing of aquaculture that we are delving into today and involves the farming of aquatic organisms in a purely saltwater environment, be it an open ocean system or enclosed in inland saltwater tanks. 
For the purposes of this podcast, we are looking specifically at the shellfish mariculture industry rather than finfish, which is the fancy word for any fish with fins. Shellfish are any aquatic species that have an exoskeleton or outer shell. Shellfish include a wide range of species from clams to oysters, to crabs and lobsters, to scallops and mussels. We are focusing our attention today towards the oyster, more specifically the native eastern oyster or Crassostrea virginica. Oysters are what we call bivalves, meaning that they have two calcium carbonate shells that enclose their organs and tissues. They have gills that filter out oxygen from the water. Wild oysters tend to grow best in shallow coastal waters where they attach onto surfaces and grow. Changes in oceanic temperature trigger oyster reproduction, where the males release sperm that then cause the female oysters to release their eggs to get fertilized. Within 24 hours, the floating egg will hatch into an oyster larvae and the cycle repeats. Farmed oysters, on the other hand, are usually grown in cages located on shallow coastal waters. Reproduction occurs artificially, allowing oyster farmers to control different variables to achieve the highest reproductive success. Now, it's time to welcome Dr. Jane Harrison, the Coastal Economics Specialist with the North Carolina Sea Grant. Hi, Dr. Harrison. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about how the eastern oyster has been modified to achieve the highest reproductive success? We have different species that live on the east and west coast. We have the eastern oyster here. Um, on the west coast, you have the Pacific oyster. There's also some other types. Um, and one of the things that has allowed the aquaculture industry to really, really grow um, is that we have genetically altered our eastern oyster so that it doesn't reproduce. So an aquaculture oyster never goes through a reproduction stage and that allows them to grow much faster. Um, you know, it would take a lot longer, um, you know, it's, for a wild oyster, you know, to grow up to a harvestable size can easily be, you know, three years or so. Um, whereas an aquaculture oyster could be ready to go within 12 months or maybe, you know, 18. It definitely cuts that time in half. Um, so that's huge to let the industry grow. Thanks, Dr. Harrison. Now we're going to frame a brief history of aquaculture. Aquaculture has actually been around for thousands of years. The first record of the farming of an aquatic species dates back to 1000 BC in China. Carp, a species of finfish, was farmed in controlled pond ecosystems. Manure was added to the ponds to stimulate algae growth and add nutrients to the water. In fact, nutrient additives are still a very common method used today. A few hundred years later, Romans began capturing oysters in Mediterranean saltwater lagoons providing evidence of the earliest known oyster farms. Since then, aquaculture has come a long way. Today, the global aquaculture industry is valued at an eye-watering $300 billion. This industry is indeed the fastest growing food sector currently, with future projections calling for a continual rise. In the United States, aquaculture is practiced at working waterfronts in every coastal state and supports the restoration of marine habitat, economy of coastal communities, and commercial fisheries themselves by taking pressure off of wild stocks. The United States currently plays a minor role in global aquaculture contributions, coming in around 17th in 2017 in terms of production, while it leads in global imports. Nearly 90% of our seafood is sourced out of country, but we are slowly closing the gaps. Oysters are one of the fastest growing industries of our time. Here is Dr. Harrison to talk about the economic importance of aquaculture. 
aquaculture, you know, now represents 50% of the seafood that we eat, you know, across the world. So, you know, over time, our wild caught fisheries have declined and we've been eating less and less wild caught uh, seafood and we're eating more and more cultured seafood. Um, most of that comes from Asia. I think about 90% from China. Um, they have been doing aquaculture for longer than anyone um, for my research. Um, and, you know, that's something we want to grow here in the U.S. We'll talk more with Dr. Harrison about policy and economics later on in our podcast. Considering these projections, what key aspect must we keep in mind? Sustainability. That's right, we'll circle back around to this later. Despite this projected increase in global aquaculture, there are some obstacles that can limit the success of shellfish aquaculture and threaten our wild shellfish and finfish stocks. The main concern is climate change. It is no secret that we are currently facing a massive climate crisis. Global temperatures are rising, the frequency of highly destructive storms and natural disasters is increasing, and it is more important than ever that we fully consider the consequences climate change may have on our very vital food sources and ecosystems and take action now. We think oysters can be a part of this solution. Oysters come into play here because unlike farmed fin fish species, oysters and shellfish actually benefit their surrounding environment. This seems counterintuitive, how can the farming of an animal actually help the environment? Well, there are quite a few ecosystem services these little buddies provide. Let's welcome Ms. Natalie Simon. She is a biologist in University of Florida's shellfish extension team, here to provide her knowledge and insights. Hi, Ms. Simon, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us if the shellfish industry is in fact sustainable? So yeah, I would say shellfish are green, green, green. And what I mean by that is it's a green industry. And in fact, they provide many ecosystem services. So in terms of them being sustainable, um, they're very sustainable compared to um, some of the other aquaculture practices. So for shellfish in the hatchery, that's the only time we're actually inputting food. So that's when we're growing algae or sometimes supplying bottled algae um, to the clams and oysters. And that's because we really wanna control what food they're getting, what nutrients they're getting. We're also controlling you know, the water temperature and the salinity. We wanna make sure that they have the optimal growing conditions so that they can grow to a market size. And so in the hatchery, that's when we do have inputs, but once they're in, the nursery stage or on the grow out stage on the leases, they're getting fed by mother nature. So they're filtering the water that contains all the phytoplankton and their algae. So that's where their food is coming from. And uh, I'll give you some data that's just absolutely incredible. So we have this environmental benefits page on our website and it includes data from 2012. And in 2012, 544 million gallons of seawater was filtered by the state production of 136 million clams. And just to give you an idea of the economic value that is, it's almost 90, it's a little over $99,000, um, just in terms of how green this industry is and then the ecoservices that it provides. You know, clams and oysters aren't just filtering water, but they're also providing other services, uh, including uh, removal of nitrogen. They also sequester clams. 
They provide ecosystems for fish. I, the list goes on and on for ecosystem services. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie, for giving us that important overview of how sustainable the industry is. We'll talk more with Natalie about climate change and oysters later on. An important thing to mention is that not all aquaculture provides the same ecosystem services. Now, let's welcome Dr. Ashley Smith. She is a professor of biogeochemistry at the University of Florida, and she's here to provide her expertise. Hi, Dr. Smith. Thanks for joining us. Is shellfish more or less sustainable than finfish aquaculture? I think shellfish uh, aquaculture, mariculture is the most sustainable. I think aquaculture has a dirty, is a dirty word to some people because they think of finfish aquaculture. Uh, but shellfish aquacultures actually provides a lot of benefits to the environment and to us. Finfish aquaculture, as Dr. Smith briefly mentioned, is responsible for many environmental issues. Farmed fish can lead to the spread of disease to wild fish, contamination of aquatic habitats, and farmed fish outcompeting wild fish species. However, shellfish aquaculture is a different story as it provides these important ecosystem services. Dr. Smith, can you describe some of these benefits that oysters and other shellfish species provide? They are great. They're so charismatic, but people don't think they are. Uh, they're more than just on your dinner plate. They do so much for the environment. So they mainly, their main function is because they filter feed. So they suck out particles that are in the water to get their food. And then the water that passes through them is now clear. So that reduces, increases light availability. So that can really help benthic habitats like seagrass beds. Uh, when the water's too dirty, the seagrasses can't get their light. So that's, the filter feeding capacity is really the key for shellfish that can help all, the, all these other benthic habitats too. But they also repackage all that organic matter, all that material into their biodeposits, a nice word for their poop. Uh, and then that ends up on the sediment surface, and then that feeds microbes. Uh, and the microbes also turn the nitrogen that fueled the algae that the oysters grazed on into N2 gas. And N2 gas is where we want nitrogen to be. The majority of our atmosphere, 78%, is nitrogen gas. Dr. Smith explained it very well. Oysters clean the water very efficiently. Oysters are suspension feeders, meaning that they consume nutrients and sediments floating in the water. This is important because excess nutrients in oceanic environments can cause something called eutrophication. Eutrophication is the overabundance of nutrients in water causing harmful algal growth. This algae growth is capable of ruining entire complex ecosystems. Algal blooms can produce toxins that kill animals and plants. Oysters are able to reduce the effects of eutrophication through their filter feeding abilities. Furthermore, oysters create suitable habitats for other aquatic species. Oyster reefs and beds provide small holes and caves for small aquatic species to grow and live in. Plants can also grow in and around the oyster reefs, which in turn attract more life to the reefs. This habitat construction can be very beneficial to coastal ecosystems. In addition, oyster reefs can give structure to coastlines, which reduce coastal erosion from waves and storms. A positive bonus of oyster mariculture is that it reduces the stress and reliance on wild oyster populations as a food source and for ecosystem benefits. Because wild-caught oyster populations are threatened, farmed oysters provide the exact same levels of water filtration and denitrification, 
while also stimulating the economy and providing food. Dr. Smith, is it better for us to eat wild oysters or mariculture farmed oysters? Sometimes we think there may be the misconception that wild-caught fish and shellfish are better for us and for the environment. I don't think we should be doing any wild harvest of shellfish. Uh, shellfish don't taste differently based on whether they are wild harvest or they're aquacultured uh, because they taste like where they're grown and they're still grown in the water. Uh, they don't require any food source. Like they're just naturally eating whatever's there to begin with. You don't have to add algae. You don't have to like treat them with anything to keep them healthy. They're just going to live off what's in the environment. And because there's still a growing demand for shellfish, this having aquacultured shellfish will allow us to take the demand off of that wild population and we still get to eat our tasty treats, but now we can let this wild population recover uh, that's considered functionally extinct. Oysters, as we've learned, provide a lot of benefits to our environment and aid in mitigating the effects of climate change. Conversely, climate change is not so beneficial to oysters. We now want to look at a few ways that our changing climate is negatively affecting oysters, both farmed and wild. Let's welcome Ms. Simon back. Can you tell us more about what causes oyster mortalities and summer mortality events? You know, Florida is warm temperatures are the cornerstone to the almost year-round production we have of oysters and clams. In fact, we're really the southernmost extent of where you find the hard clam mercenary mercenary distributed. Um, but again, we're seeing and hearing from growers that there's production problems in the summer with what we call summer mortality events, um, where product that is ready to be harvested dies. Now, there can be a range of factors that could be leading to these mortalities. And at the time, we don't have a single culprit, but shellfish can get stressed for a number of reasons. Um, for instance, when the water temps rise above 90 and it's paired with low salinity due to rainfall or river discharge, and there might be low dissolved oxygen uh, this can cause a problem with stress and lead to mortality uh, if these events are prolonged. And then with oysters, you know, they're, they're pretty good at surviving in a range of salinities, but they don't do too well when there's a sudden swing or extreme swings. Um, so things that could raise or lower salinity are again periods of extreme drought or when there's torrential rainfalls and those could have negative impacts. One of the biggest impacts of climate change on oysters is hurricanes. Hurricanes are very dangerous for oysters. We were surprised to learn that while hurricanes can fatally uproot and disperse oysters and destroy oyster reefs, this is not the only way in which hurricanes affect oysters. Hurricanes hold and release massive amounts of fresh water. When a hurricane hits the east coast, it releases this fresh water into saltwater environments. This rapid addition of fresh water to marine environments can kill oysters. Miss Simon, what is the influence of hurricanes on shellfish and oysters, and what steps have you taken to solve this climate dilemma? With climate change, we're seeing more intense storms and hurricanes, and this increased damage from wind and flooding, but also storm tides exacerbated by rising sea level. And the intensity of these storms can result in severe impacts to oyster farms, like what we've seen with Michael in 2018 and now Sally and Zeta this year. And so this emphasized the importance of 
a hurricane recovery program and it emphasized the importance of getting out fact sheets on storm preparedness with shellfish operations. So as an example of collaboration, we worked with Auburn Shellfish Lab and LSU in collaboration with Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana Sea Grant to develop a series of fact sheets um, that focused on storm plan development. So what do you, what are your pre-storm preparations look like? What do you do after the storm? Um, what does recovery look like? And so these were really great resources um, that turned out into, I believe it's six fact sheets. And they were developed with growers input at a workshop. So we actually held an open discussion meeting where growers shared the lessons they learned and their perspectives from the previous hurricanes, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And this collaboration between the growers and the extension agents produced a resource that can now assist new and current growers with hurricane prep and recovery um, based on their farm's needs. Um, and again, the information includes checklists on gear like adjustable long lines, uh, floating cages, floating bags, land-based operations and work boats. And that can be all found on the oyster section of our website. When you have aquaculture and our aquaculture is done off bottom for oyster production. So you have these bags that are floating on the surface. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, in 2018, Hurricane made, Michael made landfall as a category five hurricane. And so this directly impacted our oyster farm operations in the panhandle. And one of the biggest obstacles our growers faced during the recovery of their gear was that it wasn't marked. So they couldn't identify who the owner of a bag or a cage or a basket was once it kind of got blown away off their lease. Um, some of it ended up actually on the on a main highway in some of the forest area, you know. So it wasn't so much that the oysters had died from low salinities, it was no one could identify whose oyster was who and whose gear was who, and therefore it sat on land and those oysters died. And so what we did was we implemented this gear tagging program to assist growers that were affected by Hurricane Michael and assist them in future recovery efforts. So we actually provided these uh, durable custom tags that had the grower's name, their business name, and their contact information on them. And I think at the time there was uh, almost 80 growers that were eligible for the program and we had a really good turnout with, I think it was 70% participating. And now after Hurricane Sally and a couple other squalls and storms, We've gotten good feedback that this tagging system does work, um, that they're happy to have it. One of the most notorious climate events associated with climate change is rising sea temperatures. These rising sea temperatures, if too extreme a change, can kill oyster populations. Changes in sea temperature can also cause oysters to reproduce prematurely. Ms. Simon, what can you tell us about the work you are doing to restore oyster populations affected by climate change? Another project um, that's a lot larger in scale and that involves oysters and that's the Lone Cabbage Oyster Reef Project and that's located in the Suwannee Sound. And what's interesting is this reef has lost over 88% of its oysters in the last 30 years or so and it's also losing elevation from wave and wind action. 
Uh, now the oysters have died off because of these increasing salinities, and that's caused by the decline in freshwater discharge that comes from the Suwannee River. And as this reef degrades, the oyster shell starts to disappear, and that causes oysters to have a difficult time recolonizing, you know, the remaining sandbars because there is no suitable substrate for them to settle on. Um, but in 2019, this project oversaw the completion of reef construction, where about eight acres or I think it's three linear miles of the Lone Cabbage Reef was restored um, through the addition of substrate. So looking at uh, including boulders and then putting some colch, so oyster shell down. And now the reef mimics a natural oyster bar and it's made up of these 22 smaller reefs of various sizes. And it's all based off of historical reef surveys done in the 1800s. And so now um, it's about one to two feet higher in elevation than what it was in 2018. And over the next few years, they're gonna continue monitoring the reef um, to look at oyster colonization, and then they're going to track water quality parameters, for instance, salinity, and how that can change depending on the tides, the winds, and the river discharge. What has caused the decline in freshwater discharge? It's actually a result of increasing human water use upstream. So, you know, our ability to get fresh water for ourselves, potable water coming from springs and um, that can decrease the amount of freshwater discharge coming from our rivers. Ocean acidification is another worry for oysters. Changes to pH can wreak havoc on oysters, which generally flourish at a specific pH. If pH is too low, oyster larvae can die and juvenile oyster shells can actually disintegrate. Most oceanic acidification occurs on the west coast and not as severely on the east coast. Here is Ms. Simon once more to talk about ocean acidification. Oftentimes with climate change, you hear of ocean acidification. Um, and just so you know what ocean acidification is, or for your listeners in the future, that's when carbon dioxide is absorbed by the oceans. And this can actually decrease the amount of carbonate that's in the water. Carbonate is extremely important for shellfish. Um, it's actually what forms the shells of the shellfish. So that nice white shell that's on the oyster or sometimes that pattern shell that's on the clam. And in the nursery, what can happen if you see acidification is these shells become opaque almost, a little bit translucent. And really we're not seeing that issue here in the Gulf of Mexico. That's something that's really been prevalent on the west coast and they've learned to sort of deal with that by what's called liming or buffering their water before it comes into the hatchery system and that helps to um, bring that pH up. Um, but again here in the Gulf of Mexico we, we haven't seen any effects from ocean acidification um, but what we do see is that the increased runoff sometimes after water events can actually lower the pH for a short period of time. And sometimes that can cause closures. Um, again, runoff introduces some other things like fecal coliforms, and that's where DAX is the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Um, they're regulating and they're actually checking water and monitoring it on a regular basis to make sure that one a lease area is opened, that those shellfish are safe and ready to be eaten by the consumer.
Thank you so much, Miss Simon. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our guest speakers today. You can check out the fascinating research that Dr. Harrison is currently undertaking at North Carolina Sea Grant's website, nccgrant.com. Read more about Dr. Smith's work at the University of Florida's Tropical Research and Education Center website, trec.ifas.ufl.edu. Finally, Natalie Simon's fact sheets on tropical storm and hurricane preparedness for oyster aquaculture can be found at the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium website, masgc.org. We encourage you to check out these resources to learn a bit more about the valuable work being done to protect our coastal ecosystems through oyster-related research and work. For listeners who want further information about oysters, reading articles and papers are a quick and easy way to acquire some new knowledge. Check out this 2017 Guardian article titled, Why Oysters, Mussels, and Clams Could Hold the Key to More Ethical Fishing, written by Jennifer Jacquet. It lays out the environmental differences between oyster mariculture and finfish aquaculture, and establishes why oysters are so important for our future. We encourage you to continue exploring these topics on your own, as well as taking actions to reduce your carbon footprint and preserve our coastal ecosystems. Be sure to tune in to our follow-up podcast episode to learn more about the intersections between aquaculture, policy, and economics. This week's episode was written and produced by Thomas Odlum and Jaya Brizendine. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode, where Jaya and I will be continuing our fascinating discussion with Dr. Smith, Dr. Harrison, and Ms. Simon. We will be examining the impact of the shellfish mariculture industry on coastal communities and ways in which policies and regulations affect this industry.